Uh, thank you that everybody's here, Danny and Abby, what they mean to me, um, Jimmy and Sandy, my family being here from out of town. It's just good to see everybody. As for your grace right now and wisdom as we consider truth, the truth of your word, who you are, and the implications uh, for following you and what that means. Uh, thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I wanted to share this slide. This is from Patch Hicks. It was feedback from last Sunday. Patch said this, um, believing one thing Jesus says means believing everything he says. He cannot be divided. He speaks truth because he is the truth. I really appreciated Pat sending that to me. The idea is you can't pick and choose. You can't say, oh, I like that. Jesus says love one another. Oh, I like that one. That's a good thing. Well, you can't, you can't ignore the fact that Jesus said that my father will come and there will be judgment. You can't ignore that one. You've got to take it all. And that is, uh, that's the challenge of following Jesus. So, kids, we're going to be digging into what it means when you have an outside source of information. Like, for example, um, how many times, Rachel, have you guys ever had any work done in your house? HVAC comes in, okay? You get an outside authority. Yes. Yeah. By the way, Lisa and I, uh, we're going to have to get another air conditioning system at our house, so... Ours went out upstairs, and so we got an outsider coming in to help. Well, that's the idea. What about an outsider helping? Somebody on the outside. That's the idea. And maybe you guys can come up with a good picture about what does it mean to get help from somebody uh, besides, besides maybe your own family. So here we go. Um, focusing in on evidence of Jesus from a historical standpoint, remember we're doing a lot of history. We're doing a lot of technical work in this series. And I'm, I'm really excited to share this stuff with you guys today. So just a couple of things in review. When it comes to criteria, the critical convictions that you're going to use to judge scripture by or judge source information by, uh, here's some of the standards by which you judge a manuscript. One of them is multiple attestation. In other words... Is there somebody else talking about this besides you? Okay, well, you have internal as well as external uh, validation or source information. So we're going to look at external today. All right, here's a list of what we're going to cover. And I know these are very strange names. Um, I'm showing you guys that so you can kind of fix it in your head. And I just want to walk through what they've said. All right. Now, to set the scene, it looks like this. When you want to find out about Jesus, you go straight to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, correct? I mean, that's obvious. You go to the, the four Gospels. The question is, are people commenting about Jesus, his followers, that have nothing to do with Christianity? Outsiders commenting about Jesus? And the answer is yes. All right. So here's some, here's some of, of, of what they're saying. And it's really fascinating. So Josephus, who is a Jew, who sided with, the Romes, with Rome and became a historian on Rome's behalf. Brilliant dude, saved his skin by doing that. And this is what Josephus said about Jesus. Now, around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, 
for he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of people who gladly accepted the truth. He won over both many Jews and Greeks. Pilate, when he heard him, accursed by the leading men among us, Jews, condemned him to the cross. But those who had first loved him, those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. That's what Josephus said. That those that radically loved him didn't stop loving him. And the tribe of followers continues today. That's amazing. Thallus. Thallus said this. He's a Roman historian. Possibly Samaritan. That's a thought. He said this. During the crucifixion, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness. And the rocks were rent by an earthquake. And many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness is recorded in Thousand, the third book of the history calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. That's reported by Julius Africanus, quoting Thalus. Interesting. That at the crucifixion, you might remember in the gospel, one of the gospels says that the temple veil, what happened to it? Top down. You know how thick that thing is? You couldn't, mules could not rip that thing apart. And God just, right there, instantly. And there was an earthquake and the eclipse. We have secular historians documenting that. It's fascinating. Tacitus, a Roman senator. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Just simply reporting the facts of what happened. Pliny the Younger is a Roman lawyer, he's a magistrate. He's, he's writing to his authorities saying, we've got a problem here, they're called Christians, what do I do? And this is his accusations against the Christians. This is what Pliny says. He says this, these Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. When they sang an alternative alternative verses of a hymn to Christ as to a God, and they bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. When you make a promise, you keep it. After which, it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Pliny the Younger describing a weekly cycle in the life of a Christian. They gather and they sing a hymn or hymns to Jesus as though he's God or a God. They promise to be morally pure and they partake of a food of a simple, ordinary kind. Fascinating. Suetonius, Roman historian, said this, because the Jews at Rome had caused constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. He, Claudius, expelled them from Rome, from the city. Documenting, just simply an external source, documenting Jesus Christ in history. Um, Bar Serapion said this, 
Roman Stoic philosopher from the Roman province of Syria. What benefit did the Athenians obtain by putting Socrates to death? Or what benefit the people of Samos for burning Pythagoras to death? In one moment, their country, country was covered with sand. Or of the Jews by, mur by murdering their wise king. After that, their kingdom was abolished. God rightly avenged these men. The wise king lives on in the teachings he enacted. It's fascinating. Phlegon said this. I know that sounds like phlegm. I am so glad my mom did not name me phlegm. Mom. So, Phlegon said this. In this history, it is mentioned that at the time of Tiberius Caesar at the full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Outside sources. Yeah. Phlegon also says that Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself. He didn't care about himself. But that he rose from the death, from the, after death, and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed his hands and his, uh, had been pierced by nails. Plugum had said that. Just a few more. Lucian. Lucian says this. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. The distinguished personages, personage who introduced their novel rights and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures, Christians are misguided creatures, start with a general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt of death and their voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith with the result that they despise all goods, worldly goods alike and regarding them merely as common property. That's what Lucian, an outsider, says of Christians. It is a tender letter here by Abgar or Abgarus. He's from Edessa. So if you go north out of Jerusalem, you're going to hit Syria and you bend to the right. You're in Upper Mesopotamia. He's right in there. It's in modern Turkey. Now, this is during the three years of Jesus' ministry on earth. This is what is recorded from Abgarus. He's a, by the way, he's a king in this area. He writes a letter to Jesus. Let me set the scene. I want you to appreciate this. If your loved one has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Now, what do we know about pancreatic cancer? You doctors here, do you survive that? No. What does treatment do? Maybe it gives you a little bit of quality of life, but it's just going to be a matter of time, right? You're, just, you're pushing back the inevitable when you have pancreatic cancer. Okay. 
if your loved one had pancreatic cancer, would you, and you knew, you heard that real miracles are being done at a particular church or by a particular man, would you hustle and bustle to get that person to that healer? Would you? Would you do what it takes for your loved one? Okay. So Abgar writes to Jesus and says, I have heard the reports of you and your cures as performed by you without medicine or herbs. For it is said that you make the blind see and the lame walk, that you cleanse leopards and cast out impure spirits and demons, and that you heal those afflicted with lingering disease and you even raise the dead. And having heard all these things concerning you, I have concluded that one of two things must be true. Either you are God, and having come down from heaven, you do these things, or you who do these things are the Son of God. I have therefore written to you to ask you that you would take the trouble to come to me and heal the disease which I have. For I have heard that the Jews are murmuring against you and are plotting to injure you. But I have a small yet noble city, which is great enough for both of us. He said, come and heal me, and then you can live with me. There's room for you in my city. Can you imagine? He hired a courier to get that letter to Jesus. Can you imagine the conversation between Jesus and that courier? Can you imagine? Kelsus or Keltos. Kelsos, a Greek philosopher. By the way, Kelsos is one of the most aggressive attackers of Christianity right out of the gate. He does his best to show how foolish, stupid, and idiotic Christians are. He records documents, external documents about Jesus. He says that Jesus had come from a village in Judea, Judea and was the son of a poor Jewish who gained her living by the work of her own hands. She was driven out by her husband and she gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child. Jesus, on account of his poverty, was hired out to go to Egypt. While there, he acquired certain magical powers with Egyptians and they pride themselves on these powers. He returned home highly elated at possessing these powers. And then on the strength of them, gave himself out to be a god. How's that for a secular attack on Christianity? Early, early at this period. Last one, the Talmud. What's the Talmud? It is the greatest body, collected body, of technical writing of the Jews about the law and about how you apply the law, commentaries about all of those things. Very, very elaborate. Fascinating to study the Talmud. This is what the Talmud says. By the way, even though it's late, 400 to 700, it was actually, the Talmud is in practice 100 BC. This is just when it was recorded. All right, so this is old, this is old news for these guys. Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. The Jews didn't like him. (laughs) In commenting about Psalm 91.10, 
The statement, no evil will befall you, means that evil dreams and evil thoughts will not tempt you, nor shall any plague come near your house, which means that you will not have a son or a disciple who burns his food like Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) They did not like him at all. Finally, in the Talmud it says, it was taught that on the day before the Passover that hanged Jesus, a herald went before him for 40 days that he will be stoned because he practiced magic and enticed Israel to go astray. Let anyone who knows anything in his favor come forward and plead for him. But nothing was found in his favor and they hanged him on the day before Passover. Wow. External sources, right? What I'm trying to, to show you that the, the people who deconstruct their faith are trying to say that Christianity is fictitious, it's man-made religion, etc., etc., and what's written in the Gospels cannot be trusted. Actually, it can be trusted because there's external attesting to the validity of what happened and who Jesus is. We can't dismiss it as myth. We can't dismiss it, dismiss it as folklore or legend, or something like that. This really happens. So um, I wanted you to see this. This is Luke 1. Everybody turn to Luke 1. You can see it on the screen. To show you just how serious Luke is as a writer, as a historian. Since many have overtaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were autopsia. Autopsy, our English word. When you take a body in for an autopsy, they open it up and they look for themselves on the inside. That's an autopsy. Autopsia means eyewitnesses. So we are writing down or receive what is handed down to us from the beginning by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. The term the exact truth means it is certain. It's, there's no doubt attached to it. It's undoubted truth. It's firm fact. So from this standpoint, Luke takes tremendous effort to collect all the data that is available and record a two-volume set, Luke-Acts. Both are tremendous pieces of history. His writing is, is wonderful as written in Greek. And we derive tremendous historical information out of Luke. 1 Corinthians 15. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. The term pity is, in in this case, it's actually a negative term. And it can be translated uh, miserable. In fact, it is translated miserable in other places in the New Testament. But the idea is that you're the object of pity in a negative sense. It's like you're saying, 
How pathetic. How shameful. How disappointing. What, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 is this. He's saying if there's no resurrection, it's all smoke and mirrors. We misunderstood it. Jesus was a shyster, a magician. He's saying if we missed it, there's no resurrection. Then all we have is this life right here, right now, and that's it. And you better pick some wise teacher because we all need wisdom. And we thought Jesus was a good one, so we followed him. If that's all we got, we who claim to be Christian, if that's all we have, how pathetic is that? How miserable is that to think that's all there is? That's all there is. I really appreciate something Lee Strobel says. Lee, Lee says, um, well, you know, these, these, the disciples, they were martyred. And, and martyrs don't, don't die over a lie, right? Who would do that? And, and Lee, Lee Strobel has his opponents. Oh, yeah, I'm sure people have been dying over what's false for years and decades and centuries. Well, of course they have, you know. Uh, in, during World War II, when Japan, the Pacific Theater, they would send kamikaze pilots in and they would literally drive their, fly their planes into, into ships and sea in belief that if you died honorably in suicide, it guarantees you heaven, their version of heaven. Of course, you know, in radical Islam, it's the same thing. You know, if you die a martyr uh, while, you're, while you're killing your enemies, then it guarantees you heaven and all kinds of good things up there, right? We would all say, well, that's a lie. We would all say that. But this is what's interesting. People don't die over a lie in the sense that something that they know, in fact, to be a lie. There's a huge difference. A person can be deceived and, and be willing to die for that. But what if you know it was, in fact, a lie and you were conscious that it was a lie? Would you die over that? I, I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Here's the point. The disciples, the apostles, were willing to die not because they were deceived. They were willing to die because... They knew the truth. And the truth had been examined and the truth had been experienced. They saw him after the resurrection. There is no doubt. And because of that, they were willing to sacrifice their own lives for their faith because it was something that could not be questioned. James Dunn, I know Justin, PhD in New Testament, studied Dunn, Dunn, one of the most distinguished professors of the New Testament in the last hundred something years. James, Jimmy Dunn, absolutely brilliant New Testament scholar. <clears throat> Dunn argues that the Apostles' Creed formed within months after the resurrection. Not decades, not centuries, but months that this body of information was solidified in oral tradition. And by the time that we have an established written form, it's as early as AD 140. This is absolutely early, early data on Christian 
Christian faith doctrinal statements. Makes sense? <clears throat> you know, the tender story between Abgarus, who has a horrific disease, and he heard of this healer out of Judea and writes a letter from the depths of his heart, would you please come and heal me? I'm too sick to travel. I understand you're in political trouble. You can come live with, it, with me. And the tenderness of that exchange. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three and a half years, seeing the blind healed, the deaf healed, the dead raised, the lepers cleansed, seeing it all, watching the loudmouth in the youth group, Peter, have enough courage to get out of a boat and walk on water. Can you imagine seeing that? Can you imagine seeing fish and bread multiply at such a level that it fed 5,000 men? And when you add the kids and, and spouses, it could have easily been 10 to 20,000 people fed. Even if it was just 5,000, it's still a miracle. Okay? You, you were there. You saw it. You heard the teachings. You witnessed all of it. You, you didn't like what he said when he said, hey, guys, you know, we're moving south out of Galilee. We're moving south, going uphill to Jerusalem. And I'm telling you, when, I'm, when I get there, it's going to get bad. There's going to be arrests. There's going to be floggings. There's going to be beatings. There's going to be a scandal. Don't. Abandon me. Stay with me. Stay the course. And they didn't like that. Peter didn't like it. He said, yeah, I'm not going to let anybody hurt you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? One of the most biting indictments given the New Testament. He says, what? Get behind me, Satan. How's that for Jesus making up his mind about what's right? And Peter, the, the denials, you remember the whole thing. The crucifixion. They were shaken by the same earthquake that everybody else was. The darkness, all of that. Hiding out for fear that Rome would send in more people to retaliate, to try to really keep this thing quiet. So let's, let's just quickly take out his, his men and we'll really snuff this little movement out. They're hiding out. And three days later... Some women, women whose testimony was pretty close to that of a shepherd in, in legal terms, are dispatched by an angel to tell the apostles that Jesus is alive and he supernaturally appears and he lets them touch his hands and his body, the wound in his side. He breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? And there's teaching and there's teaching and there's teaching. And then there's the ascension. And your head is spinning. And you sit with the disciples. And all of a sudden... They have this urgency. They say, we, 
what do you think about this? How, how, you know, what are, you, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? And I don't know, maybe it was the loud mouth in the youth group. Maybe it was Peter. Maybe it was John. We don't know. But someone says, well, you know what? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. <laughs> no doubt there. He made heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. That's what, Abgar, that's what Abgarus said. One of two things. you either God or you're a son of God. We believe in Jesus, his only son. Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Born of the Virgin Mary. What Kelsos is saying about, about that Roman centurion soldier named Pantera and Mary was a lie. It was a cover up. She was not seduced by a Roman soldier. He suffered under the hand of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Some say he jerked the keys of life and death out of the hand of Satan. <laughs> He's got the keys now when you read Revelation. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he will come to judge the quick and the dead, those who are alive and those who have already died. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. These men, this formed and I believe James Dunn is right, within months or at an incredibly early time after the resurrection. So, what's frustrating about our faith, because we're 2,000 plus years removed, is we can't get Jesus under a test tube. We can't. We can't do that. Um, do you recall, I'm, I'm going to push you just a little bit here. Do you recall during the miracles of Jesus? It's in John's gospel. There's the feeding, you know, feeding the 4,000, feeding the 5,000, you know, lots of food. All right. Lots of food going on. Do you know what Jesus said about those who followed him in the miracles? He said, I know why you guys are following me. Do you remember what he said? You're here for the food. <laughs> you know how, how, like when the church is a big potluck, non-attenders somehow attend. You know, hey, free food. Come on, let's get some food. So he said, you're here for the food. And he said, you're missing the point. Okay. So what would happen? Let's just say Christ Church, God granted a miracle. And the supernatural happened every Sunday, all week long. Revival breaks out, but it's a revival of healing. And, and the miracles were happening and people were, you know, all of it. What would happen 
if, if those kinds of miracles would happen. What do you think? What's that? People would come. <clears throat> For how long? How long would the show last? What's that? Could go on a long time, yeah. You know, I mean, if it's real healing. Yeah. Ah, there you go, Freddie. That's actually in the New Testament. <laughs> Even when seeing miracles, and I'm talking about the real variety, <laughs> not the fake and bake that we see out here a lot. The real ones, people still doubted. They questioned it. They argued against it. And they said, smoke and mirrors, man. It's magic. It's magic. We can't get Jesus in a test tube. We can't. And there's an element in which faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things you cannot see. And that's what we, 2,000 years out, cling to. We are not the objects of pity. We are not fools. We are not intellectually blunted because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are not. It is the right thing to do when you understand who Jesus Christ really is. So when, uh, 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 Dale, you've mentioned this to me in the past, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And faith will always, always have a price. Okay. What are your thoughts? I want some feedback. External attestation, we looked at many sources documenting, quite frankly, much of this material right here. What are your thoughts about how we can have a strong faith that is not so riddled with doubt that we're hanging on by a dear thread? Genuine faith. What are your thoughts? Yes. Um, I have a friend that has pancreatic cancer, and she's been praying for She's had it for about five years. And I got a message from her. And she says, I've got to have my bone story on her hip. And um, if they don't get it,
Man, that's amazing, Freddie. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Freddie, thank you so much. Say that again, Linda. Yeah, it's, it's, it is just vicious. Absolutely vicious, yeah. Somebody else about faith and the historical evidence of Jesus. He's not a myth. By the way, um, bear, this is going to sound so petty. If someone comes up to you, if, if some Middle Eastern person comes up to you and says, by the way, I don't think Abraham Lincoln existed. Would that bother you? There's no such thing as a George Washington. Would that bother you? Why? Their opinion doesn't matter, yeah. What did you say? That we know that they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's that? There's no truth. Yeah. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. So, but what is, what is it about if someone says, well, you know, Jesus was just a magician. He was just a well-intentioned Jew they kind of caught up in the wrong headspace, got a chip in his shoulder, had ego issues, probably had a bad childhood experience, who knows? You know, angry dad with carpenter tools that could have been really rough, and he just got all messed up in his head and he needed attention, you know? And so he developed what's called a messiah complex, by the way, now. And, and so he just learned some magic and smoke and mirrors, and he's one messed up dude. You'd be shocked at the people that are okay with that. Absolutely shocked. But the evidence is absolutely far and away from that. The writer of Hebrews says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to the one to be the one who rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So, all right. I want to challenge you. Yes, uh, Nathan. Sure. Uh, so, I've been, this is something I've been kind of wrestling with over the last couple of years a lot, but um, I think about, uh, like, okay, the verse that says, uh, where Jesus said, you know, I tell you the truth, you're not entered into the kingdom of heaven and I like to think about like the mindset you had the day before you were born again because to me I like I notice sometimes that uh, people go through like like a conversion process where they, they get born again and evidently you had that kind of like faith or that openness yes. that allowed you to receive the gospel. But then after believing you get this dogmatic spirit yeah. where you don't feel like it's okay to question that any longer. Yeah. And I wonder about like why didn't like Paul going through the uh, the different churches of like I'm thinking of maybe Romans where he made a lot of arguments, right? 
why didn't he just go in there and say, hey, listen, this is where what it is. Like, Jesus is the Son of God. If you don't believe that, then you're wrong. You all need to convert, and that's it. Like, why did he go through all this painstaking progress of making arguments? Yeah. You know, providing, like, testimony, explaining how all of this works. Well, it's because he is understanding that they, if they're going to accept this, they're going to accept it with a childlike spirit and being open and actually ex- explaining rational arguments to them to say, hey, you know, you may not have all the information, but if I give it to you, you may accept this on faith, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've been thinking, like, I want to have, I want to reject the kind of Christianity that is no longer that no longer has the same spirit that I had the day before I got one. I like that, yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is in the New Testament, it's John chapter twenty. Uh, Thomas says, uh, you know, I'm not gonna believe unless I see see the wounds. Jesus approaches him and says, Place your finger here, see my hands, take your hand, put it into my side. And do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Thomas Thomas answers and confesses a great theological conclusion. My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you've now believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. So you're onto something, Nathan. That there's something about the heart of a child that literally trusts. And this is what Jesus wants from us. He wants childlike faith. He wants trust. The problem is, and you've, you've already articulated it well, that we somehow think I need all the facts to line up to support my faith because if I take those facts away, then my faith is going to collapse. And I'm now a disappointed adult instead of a trusting child. And we get tripped up there. We really do. And yet... The, the adult who demands signs and miracles and wonders is the adult that has a poorly formed faith. The adult that has to have all the answers and it line up forensically to validate themselves misses the point. So now are there, are there arguments, apologetics, of course. Yeah, and we do that. Paul does that in Romans. He argues it well. Sure. Uh, so, and I, I'm not like a philosophical you know, expert or whatever, but I've been recently going through this um, series called uh, Awakening from the Mini Crisis by John Berlain, who is an atheist, according to our view. But it's been very eye-opening to me because, like, um, he talks about how, uh, like, he goes through these different philosophers. And when I went through the part about De- uh, uh, Rene Descartes, I realized that a lot of the problem that we have here in the church is that we're looking at Christianity from post-Descartes, like believing, like basically a scientific view, if, if you know, that if I believe this, 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 and this, then that makes me a Christian versus the actual experience of believing and walking, you know, and so that, that kind of aside, but he goes through in that where he talks about how there are certain things that science cannot touch at all. And basically he makes this argument where, you know, science is very good at discovering knowledge about 
things that are in categories that have an essence versus categories that don't have an essence. Like, uh, you make like a category, all the things that are white, even though everything that's white fits in that category, not everything in that white is similar enough to be studied. Say, well, we can form this scientific theory about white things, but you know, is that going to have any similarity between you know a white escalade and a, a white feather or you know a white piece of paper or whatever? So basically, he's making this argument that there there are a lot of things in the world. Um, that cannot be studied by science. Yeah, you're about three Sundays behind, Nathan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're coming late to the party. Yeah, you're late to the party. Yep, yep, yep. But anyway, so to me, uh, when you see that the way that Descartes was steering philosophy yes, yes, was yes. wrong, because not everything can be studied. You can't way, get it all in the test tube. You cannot. Then it makes it where you realize that you can. Uh, have that childlike faith. Follow the, um, the the arguments that Christianity puts forward. Yes. And that, that is actually on solid ground. And these people that pretend that their science disproves Christianity are just bluffing because it actually doesn't. And yes. It's, yes. It's something that can't be yes. put Guess Guess whose bluff has been called? Richard Dawkins. I don't know if you're aware of that. His bluff has been called and he's been and he actually has adjusted and is acknowledging a mysterious creator. Now that took some doing. <laughs> he's the one that wrote the book, The God Delusion. So Nathan, thank you. Yeah. So okay, we cannot reduce God to a test tube. Not gonna happen. If you do, you'll control it, you'll copyright it, and you'll start a whole denomination to support your pathetic ego. Linda. Yeah. Based on the data that I have, no. Well, excuse me, there may have been one. There may be one. There may be one. Yep. There may be one. Yep. Yep. It's a lot of data. It's a lot. By the way, we're going to have a whole lot of fun when we get to the evidence of, of creation. Uh, it, it, yeah, we're not we're not afraid of science at all. In fact, I think Christians should be the best scientists around. But when we get this, it's going to be really good, Kathy. That's really good, Kathy. So, all right. Um, how's your faith? Do you feel like you've got faith, like a child? Your faith is strong. 
and you're working out Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling um, I do I do appreciate Lee Burrell Leonidi by the way they're down in Georgia having a service in honor of his mother uh, Leonidi have been guiding us on Wednesday night in a series on by Chip Dodd and Chip made a famous line that God is good and life is tragic. And the fact is, life is tragic. It's very, very difficult. And when you encounter a lot of what we deal with in life, uh, the suffering, um, some people can experience suffering and it draw them to God. Other can experience suffering and it <laughs> makes them run away from God. If God is good, then why would he allow that? And it's hard to understand these things I know. But faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so Christ Church, I want to challenge you to work out your salvation and to be fully convinced that you're a Christian and that you follow his teachings and that you do so without compromise. Let me pray. Um, Abba Father, thank you for love and grace. Thank you for the way you have mercy on us, even in our doubts and our struggles as your children. Thank you so much. It's so good to get to sing songs that literally move our heart towards you. Would you please bless now in Jesus' name, amen.